don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. Alright guys, welcome to another Crypto Economy Quick Read. And today we are hitting Understanding the Lightning Network Part 2, Creating the Network. And obviously this is by Aaron Von Wertham as well. Uh, this is Part 2 of a three-part series, so if you haven't heard the first part, definitely go back and listen to that one because the first part discusses how to set up a bi-directional payment channel. And the part two is essentially how to bridge them together. One thing to note real quick is Aaron uses the word value, just, just value as uh, to represent a secret number that's being exchanged between all these parties in order to essentially prove that payments have happened in the different bridges, like in the different payment channels that are being bridged here. But there's a bit of confusion that comes when he uses the word value, or at least it constantly trips me up, even though I know what's going on and I know what he's explaining. When he says they create a value or um, so they agree on the value, I'm, I'm thinking, are we talking about the value of Bitcoin here? Or are we talking about just a numerical, matching up a numerical number? And then I realize, no, he's talking about the secret number that's being exchanged. So it's more like a key than it is just a, a value. And I think that word's a little bit vague. And particularly since this is audio, that's going to make it even more confusing. So uh, I am just going to use the word secret number every time he refers to that value specifically. Um, and hopefully that will make it a little bit more clear because it's still, this is still a little bit hard to picture in your mind. Um, and there's a lot of pieces at work. So I'm just going to make that one little change um, and just know that that's just for clarity. And he does, in fact, use the word value. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into Understanding the Lightning Network Part 2, Creating the Network. The Lightning Network is probably the most highly anticipated technological innovation to be deployed on top of Bitcoin. The payment layer first proposed by Joseph Poon and Taj Dreja about a year ago, promises to support a virtually unlimited number of off-chain transactions among users at nearly no cost, while leveraging the security offered by Bitcoin. At least three companies, Poon and Dreja's Lightning, Blockstream, and Blockchain, are currently working on implementations of the technology but few outside this small technological front line fully grasp how the future of micropayments is set to boost Bitcoin's capabilities. In this three-part series, Bitcoin Magazine lays out the basic building blocks of the Lightning Network and shows how they fit together to realize this upcoming protocol layer. The first part of this series covered basic building blocks and explained how these are used to establish bidirectional payment channels. The second part explains how bidirectional payment channels are turned into a network. The Network 
In the previous article, Alice and Bob established a bidirectional payment channel. Now, Alice wants to pay one Bitcoin to a third person, Carol. To do so, Alice and Carol could open up a payment channel between them, but they don't actually need to. As it turns out, Bob and Carol already have a mutual channel, so Alice can simply pay Carol through Bob. Specifically, Alice can pay Bob one Bitcoin and Bob can pay Carol one Bitcoin. However, Alice doesn't really trust Bob, or Carol for that matter. She's afraid that if she pays Bob, Bob will never actually pay Carol. Or perhaps Bob will pay Carol, but Carol will claim she never received the money, and Alice wouldn't know who to blame. Alice, therefore, wants to ensure that she only pays Bob one Bitcoin if he also pays Carol one Bitcoin. This is accomplished in part with a simple cryptographic trick. When Alice wants to send Carol a Bitcoin, she tells Carol to create a value, a random string of numbers, or a secret number, and send her the hash. Alice also tells Carol to exchange the original secret number with Bob for a Bitcoin. Alice, meanwhile, takes the hash from Carol, turns to Bob, and tells Bob that she will give him a Bitcoin if he provides her the corresponding secret number, which only Carol has. So Bob turns to Carol and gives Carol one Bitcoin in exchange for the secret number. Then Bob turns back to Alice with the secret number. Alice knows Bob must have gotten the secret number from Carol in exchange for a Bitcoin, and therefore concludes Carol got her Bitcoin. So Alice can confidently give Bob a Bitcoin. Everybody is happy. Well, almost everybody is happy. In this naive scenario, middleman Bob still has to trust Alice and Carol. Bob has to trust Carol to really give him the secret number after he sent her a Bitcoin, and Bob has to trust Alice to really give him a Bitcoin once he presents her the secret number. The Bitcoin for secret number trades must therefore be absolutely guaranteed along the network. More specifically, if Bob gives a Bitcoin to Carol, he must be guaranteed to get a Bitcoin back from Alice. That's where hash time-locked contracts come in, or HTLCs. Hash time-locked contracts. So Alice and Bob want to exchange a Bitcoin for the secret number through an HTLC. And Bob and Carol also want to exchange a Bitcoin for that same secret value, but never mind that for now. To do so, rather than sending Bob a Bitcoin straight up, Alice sends a Bitcoin to a new, and again, funky multi-sig address. The Bitcoins locked up on this address can be unlocked in two different ways. First option is for Bob to include his signature and the secret number. The second option is for Alice to include her own signature. However, this option has a CLTV time lock on it. Alice can sign and broadcast the transaction only after, say, two weeks have gone by. This means that Bob has two weeks to create a subsequent transaction in which he includes his signature and the secret number and broadcast it to send the Bitcoin from the funky multi-sig address to himself. As such, this trade is guaranteed. Bob can only claim Alice's Bitcoin if he provides the secret value, 
broadcasting it over the Bitcoin network makes it publicly visible for Alice to see. And if Bob doesn't provide the secret number in time, there is a timeout alternative for Alice to get her Bitcoin back. Simple. Back to the network, as that's really why this HTLC setup is needed. As mentioned, not only Alice and Bob, but also Bob and Carol established an HTLC. So if Carol claims her Bitcoin from Bob, Bob will get the secret number in return. It will be visible on the blockchain. Therefore, if that happens, Bob is guaranteed to get a Bitcoin from Alice as well. Bob can take the secret number that Carol made publicly visible on the blockchain, include it in his HTLC with Alice, and claim a Bitcoin for himself too. The two channels are effectively linked. As a final detail, it is important that Bob gets the secret number from Carol before Alice can reclaim her Bitcoin from Bob. If Bob gets the secret number from Carol only after Alice already reclaimed hers back, Bob is stuck in the middle after all. The timeout in Bob and Carol's HTLC must therefore expire before the timeout in Alice and Bob's HTLC expires. For example, after exactly 10 days instead of two weeks. This is also why HTLCs need check lock time verify, CLTV, and not check sequence verify, or CSV. Lastly, there's one more problem to solve. For the Lightning Network to be useful, all this must be accomplished off-chain. How this is done is covered in the third and final article of this series. Alright, that will conclude part two of Understanding the Lightning Network. Again, that was by Aaron Von Wertham and on BitcoinMagazine.com. So a good friend of mine called me yesterday after the episode was released and he'd listened to it. And we probably talked for like 45 minutes because he had a lot of questions and I was trying to get maybe some better ways to explain it because like I said, I know it's really dense. So it's important to, I think I want to re-summarize everything that happened in part one and part two, everything that we learned in all the little pieces so that we have a decent lead-in to tomorrow's episode, which will be part three of Understanding the Lightning Network. But I think the key to all of this is just repetition, repetition, repetition. Here it explained five different ways so that you keep getting those little pieces that start to form a full picture. Uh, but let's go back to the first part that introduced the building blocks and... Uh, despite the interaction being a little bit different, the pieces are all the same as in the previous episode. All right, so let's review. We have, we have different types of time locks first. The CLTV, or Check Lock Time Verify, is a determinate lock that expires at a specific date and time or at a specific block height. And that's no matter when it gets published to the chain or who's holding it, there's just a specific deadline. If the deadline is next Thursday, you publish it today, it executes next Thursday, you have a week to fulfill whatever that obligation is. If that same thing is broadcast on Wednesday of next week, you only have a day left. That's check lock time verify. Then there's check sequence verify, or CSV logs. These wait a certain amount of time relative to when they are put into the blockchain. So maybe it's a thousand block wait time, 
but you can hold on to that transaction for a year before ever broadcasting it, and only then does the 1,000 block timer start when you finally broadcast it. All right, now uh, the channel. So this starts with an opening transaction where Bob sends five Bitcoin to a two of two multi-sig address and Alice sends five Bitcoin to that two of two multi-sig address. But neither one of them sign it, they just exchange it and hold on to it until the commitment transactions are in place. And the commitment transactions, those are essentially like each Bob's and Alice's insurance policy. And until the insurance policy is in place, you don't buy the house. Same here. You do not execute the original opening transaction until you have your insurance policy in hand, ready to go. Okay, so what is the commitment transaction? How do we build this insurance policy? First, Alice and Bob both create for themselves a secret number. This is, this is like a single-use key. It's a one-time key. And after the states are updated in this channel, as time goes on, that key will essentially be revoked and they'll do this over and over again every time they want to update it. So this is a one-use secret number. And they each hash that secret number and give it to each other, give each other the hashes. Not the secret, we keep those keys private, but we give each other the hash. This means that both Alice and Bob can confirm the other's secret if they ever get it, but they don't yet know what it is. So now they have the pieces needed to make, to make the commitment transaction. Uh, one thing to keep in mind here is that they create transactions for each other. So Alice is writing the transaction for Bob to hold and vice versa. Bob writes the one that Alice is going to hold. So this is so both sides can be sure that there's no tricks being played. So Alice writes one that sends four Bitcoin, five minus the one that she wants to send to Bob in this situation. She sends those four back to herself and signs it so that she doesn't have to do anything else to get hers back. With this transaction she's giving to Bob, her, her side of it is done as far as getting her four back. Now the other six Bitcoin is sent to a multi-sig address. This is the funky multi-sig address that has two possible outcomes. This address says that if Alice isn't around, if she bails out of this situation for some reason and only Bob is there to sign it, he will get his six Bitcoin back, but he has to wait a thousand blocks. And this is a check sequence verify. So this is relative to when it's broadcast. So it doesn't matter if he holds on to it for a year. As soon as he broadcasts it, he has to wait a thousand blocks. And this is because we can't know exactly the reason Alice is not signing this transaction in the future. So if she's offline or something terrible happens, Bob simply has to wait. But what if Bob is lying? This is just the first route. Now, the second possibility with this multi-sig address is, and this again, Alice is writing this in, if there's a problem, Alice needs insurance. So she sends Bob's six Bitcoin back to herself but locks it with the hash of Bob's secret number. So she can't get to it. It comes back to her if this is executed, but it's up to Bob whether or not it's executed because he's holding that single-use key. So now she feels safe in giving it to Bob. 
and Bob is holding on to this transaction. And obviously the exact same thing is happening in reverse. Bob creates the same commitment with Alice's Bitcoin um, and if she broadcasts that transaction that she's holding, Bob gets his Bitcoins immediately because he's already signed it and Alice is waiting for hers. And as long as each person holds on to their secret number, their single-use key, both of their coins are safe. So now since both Alice and Bob have their insurance policies in hand written by the other person, they can both sign and broadcast the opening transaction, sending the five Bitcoin each into that two of two multi-sig address. And they can know that no matter what happens, it's not stuck there. They can get their, they can get their Bitcoin back. So they broadcast the opening transaction. Boom, the channel is open. They're holding on to their commitments, and the Bitcoin is there on the blockchain. So now updating that channel. So let's say we're sending one Bitcoin back. We sent one from Alice to Bob, and now we're sending it back from Bob to Alice. So they rewrite these commitment transactions again with the exact same conditions, but they make a new secret number. And when they exchange the new the new commitments, they also exchange their old secret numbers. So this means that if Bob broadcasts the old transaction, that, that one key that was preventing Alice from collecting on her insurance has now been exchanged. So Alice now has that secret number that allows her to execute the insurance policy. But remember, she still can't execute it without Bob's signature. So she has Bob's key, but needs Bob's signature. If Bob signs and broadcasts the old commitment transaction, she has his signature and now his secret key. So she can now get that six Bitcoin back to her, and Bob still has to wait the 1,000 blocks. And remember that this is only under the conditions that Bob tries to renege on the new deal that he tries to say no i still own that six bitcoin that we agreed on earlier rather than the five bitcoin that we have agreed and signed in our new commitment transactions so in bob's case essentially the new commitment transaction is safe because he's still holding on to his new secret number but the old commitment transaction is now extremely dangerous for him to broadcast because he gave Alice the key that allows her to execute an insurance policy. Whew, okay, so that is, that's opening the channel and updating the channel and commitment transactions and everything there. Now we're getting into part two, which luckily is a little bit quicker to explain. So part two was how do we bridge these together? How do we turn this from just a normal channel between two people to a network. So in the example, we have a channel between Bob and Alice, but we also have another one between Bob and Carol. Alice wants to pay Carol through these two channels. Now to do so, Alice needs to know that Bob paid Carol before paying Bob anything. Because otherwise, Bob can just take the Bitcoin and sit tight and be like, oh, this is great. I love this where you just give me money and I don't do anything. And simultaneously, if Bob is going to send that one Bitcoin forward, 
he needs to know he's going to get the Bitcoin from Alice. So this is where HTLCs come in, hash time lock contracts. First and pretty much always, Carol is going to make a secret number and hash it. We, we're going to do this all the time. Every time we update a commitment transaction or we're trying to create a route, there's going to be a new secret number used to ensure that everything goes through smoothly. So Alice writes another transaction. Now, and similarly to the commitment transaction, this transaction has two possible routes. It's sending that one Bitcoin to a multi-signature address, and there's two possible outcomes. The first is that Bob signs it and produces the secret number that Carol made. So this includes the hash that Carol has given to Alice. If Bob gets that secret number, he can sign it and uh, produce the secret number, and then he will get that Bitcoin. The second route is that Alice gets her Bitcoin back after a specific, not a relative. So this is check lock time verify, not check sequence uh, for a time lock. So she cannot broad the she can't even broadcast the transaction for two weeks, um, and that's just 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 the example used. The time is whatever they agree upon. So Bob has two weeks to sign this and get the secret the secret number from Carol. So Bob and Carol also have this same transaction in their channel. Bob's Bitcoin does not move to Carol unless Carol gives her the secret number. And then Bob can use that secret number to claim the ready-to-go Bitcoin in his and Alice's channel. So in the most basic terms possible, Bob is putting a Bitcoin in escrow and needs Carol's secret number to unlock it. And Alice puts a Bitcoin in escrow with Bob, requiring Bob to use Carol's secret number to unlock it. So if the secret is never exchanged, the Bitcoins return back to their owners and the transaction fails to go through. Now, the last piece of this time lock is that the, the last route in a string of routes, so we've got Alice to Bob, then Bob to Carol. Bob to Carol's time lock has to be shorter than Alice and Bob's because Bob can't be stuck waiting around for Carol's secret number after Alice's transaction unlocks and she's able to get her coin back. So if Bob and Alice have to wait 10 days for their time lock, then Bob and Carol's needs to be nine days. And that's basically it. After, after that, since both of those Bitcoin are in escrow, um, Carol can know that as soon as she gives Bob the secret key, that Bob is going to immediately use that secret key onto Alice's transaction. And boom, boom, both channels update. We have new commitments. We have new states. Carol has a Bitcoin, Alice is down a Bitcoin, Bob lost nothing. Um, and possibly in, in the situation of the um, network, maybe have, get, has gained a one cent or two cent fee, whatever it is. Okay, that's, I think that's it in a nutshell. That's pretty much everything that was covered in part two. And we will be back tomorrow for part three that will explain how these hash time lock contracts are done off-chain so that nobody has to broadcast anything during this situation. Um, but we will close this episode here. Uh, don't forget to check out Aaron Von Wordham's work. Um, it's 
so awesome that he wrote this series. Like I said, this one was really big for me trying to wrap my head around this. And a big thank you to Bitcoin Magazine as well. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at The Cryptoconomy and on Medium. And please subscribe to the podcast and share it with anyone you know who wants to learn more about Bitcoin and hear all the best Bitcoin articles that are out there. But until tomorrow, this will conclude our Crypto Economy Quick Read. Take it easy, guys. Mm-hmm.